Hi everyone and welcome to the Sydney Writers Festival. My name is Fiona Harari and on behalf of the Walkley Foundation I'm delighted to introduce you to today's session, Beyond the Block. As many of you know, the Walkley Foundation promotes excellence and innovation in Australian journalism through a year-round program of professional development, events and advocacy. The Fame Walkley Awards program has more than 30 categories, including Best Coverage of Indigenous Affairs won by Cathy Marks, across all media platforms. To win a Walkley is recognised as the pinnacle of Australian journalistic achievement. Today we're discussing why it's time for the Australian media and the public to look beyond the stereotypes that saturate our coverage of Indigenous affairs and to start focusing on the here and now. Joining me on the panel are three individuals from three very different backgrounds who have all been working to shift the way we talk, we talk about Aboriginality and Indigenous issues in Australia. Please welcome from the far end, Wesley Enoch. Wesley is from Stradbroke Island and is a proud Nunakal Nugi man. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did indeed. Thank you. Well done. A renowned dir director and writer on the stage. He's artistic director of Queensland Theatre Company. His directing credits include productions for Sydney Theatre Company, Bell Shakespeare, Playbox Theatre, Company B, Melbourne Theatre Company, Malthouse Theatre and the Sydney Festival. Cathy Marks. Cathy won the 2013 Walkley Award for coverage of Indigenous affairs for her essay on the plight of Aboriginal Tasmanians, published in Griffith Review. Her work explored the links between the past and the present, a brutal history that still reverberates in today's fragmented community. Cathy was born in Manchester and worked for Reuters and Fleet Street newspapers before moving to Australia in 1999 as the Independence Asia Pacific correspondent. She's a regular contributor to Good Weekend, The Monthly and Griffith Review, and is the author of Pit Ken, Paradise Lost. And Malandiri McCarthy. <laughs> Malandiri is a senior journalist presenter for SBS NITV News. She began her cadetship here in Sydney in 1989 and worked as a journalist until 2005 when she swapped careers and became the member for Arnhem in the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly. After the 2008 election, she was promoted to the ministry, serving as Minister for Children and Families, Indigenous and Regional Development, Tourism, Statehood, Women's Policy, Senior and Young Territorians. She sounds like she was basically running a joint. And she was also Minister Assisting the Chief Minister on Multicultural Affairs until August 2012. She returned to the newsroom in December that same year. I think, Cathy, we might start with you. Now, you came to Australia in 1999. Before you arrived here, um, how did you, what did you know about Australia's Indigenous population and, you know, what had you learnt about it in the media as well? Um, I didn't know an awful lot. Um, I mean, my knowledge was not really very deep or very wide. I mean, I think that, um, you know, when I was growing up, there was not a lot of coverage of Australia uh, in the British media. Uh, you know, it wasn't until sort of Neighbours and Crocodile Dundee that we started to hear anything at all about Australia, and then it was fairly, all fairly sort of much based on stereotypes. Um, and that did get a bit more nuanced, I think, in the, in the 1990s, perhaps, you know, post-bicentenary and so on. Um, and I think in the last sort of decade or so, you know, there's been more focus on, on Australia because of... Uh, you know, the Sydney Olympics, the Republic referendum, and, and just Australia, I suppose, playing a larger role on the world stage. Um, what did I know about Indigenous Australia? I mean, only really um, very crude stereotypes of uh, uh, racism and disadvantage and social problems and so on. And what did you discover when you got here? <laughs> um, I've discovered that... Um, the more you know, the less you understand. Um, and, you know, there is no one Indigenous story here any more than there is one Indigenous community, homogenous community. You know, there are many multiple stories, all very complex. And, I mean, I sometimes despair of, you know, shedding light on more than a tiny corner of, of um, uh, Aboriginal Australia to, to, to overseas readers. Um, so, yeah. Wesley, when, and, and Malandiri as well, when you hear um, Cathy saying that she, that she came here having heard about these stereotypes, how, do, how does that make you feel? Well, I, I guess the thing too, how, you know, the idea of welcoming 
people from from overseas and the way we kind of acknowledge people and I know those are welcome um, earlier this morning too but acknowledging the traditional people here and the elders in the room I mean, there's a lot of grey hair in the room and that's a fantastic sign of intelligence and age and wisdom and I wish we had more of that in Parliament but that whole notion of the, the sense of how we welcome people into this country is often Aboriginal culture, Aboriginal people are used as a, what I call a postage stamp. It's the little corner that you send on a letter overseas, but you never get to see inside of it. And that um, an incredible number of uh, international tourists want to experience Indigenous culture, but can't, don't. Why? Because there, there are lots of different um, barriers, I think, to experiencing what an Indigenous experience is in this country. Um, one of them, I think, is those stereotypes that in this country we see Indigenous Australians as deficient of something. And even this notion of the closing the gap, you know, which I'm all for, I think, the idea of uh, closing the gap on education, um, closing the gap on incarceration, housing, health, etc., etc., is incredibly important. But they all cast Aboriginal people as deficit, as lacking something. And so when people come over, we are often saying, yes, we have Aboriginal people, but they don't have much. And they don't have anything to say or to do because they are so hard done by. And we always have to say, okay, welcome in and see the strength and beauty and our, our cultural richness that we have in this country in a, di in a different way. Nalandiri, how do you feel about that sort of dissing, if you like, the disadvantage and the dysfunction that seems to be talked about a lot? Yeah, look, if I can just uh, take off where, where Wesley was going and also acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and the elders here as well present, um, that a lot of what we talk about in terms of stereotypes is largely based on uh, misunderstanding and misinformation. I think we need to uh, recognise that it was only in 1992 that it was legally acknowledged that the first peoples were in this country. So therefore we've got centuries of teachings which completely denied the presence of the first peoples in this country. And therefore over that period of time, uh, your learning has to be unlearnt uh, in terms of the, the stories of the first peoples of this country. And that will take time. Uh, it's, it is about, I think, a lot of it, the misinformation that, that is perpetuated uh, and we need to have a vigilance across the country that sees enough. I think the work that Wesley was doing uh, this year alone with recognition of Indigenous uh, soldiers uh, who went and fought for Australia and yet came back and were not recognised in this country, that work is only being made aware now, almost 100 years from when the Anzacs went over. Why did it take that long for the First Peoples of this country to be recognised? So in terms of the balance, just so we can understand how you both feel on this, do you think that in general the mainstream media is getting... Well, what do you think of the balance of coverage overall? I think that there is a vested interest in very particular images. And I think also Indigenous Australians, we have a vested interest in those images as well. We. Um, there's, there's a saying in our community around uh, white people, and it's called white meat. The idea that this is a form of feeding my family. Uh, and that sometimes it's an inbuilt welfare mentality as well that we do have to kind of struggle against. And this notion that we invest in certain ways of representing ourselves, instead of actually arguing about sovereignty, talking about um, the, the notion of being from this country and the legal lie of terra nullius, we use the argument of disadvantage to garner more resources and more support and more empathy within our community. We avoid the very crux of the discussion, which should be about how Aboriginal people were dis uh, dis um, dispossessed mm. at, at the point of English colonisation. I mean, you know, the, the, the Dutch tried and the Spanish tried and the, the Portuguese tried and the Macassans tried and the Japanese tried and a whole lot of people came before the English came. Um, but that notion of how when the English came there was a suppression of the truth and that has created, if you like, this disadvantage. And we are only talking about disadvantage nowadays and the stereotypes of disadvantage, be it you know, under-education, under-performance in schools, uh, um, the representation in, in, in prisons, etc., 
all of this deficit model, Aboriginal people are also engaged in and want to promote. And so I think on, on the whole, we are constantly pursuing this debate, both Aboriginal and non-Indigenous Australians, about pushing this disadvantaged model. So the, the, in a sense, the negative stereotype is almost being self-perpetuated. I, I don't want to put a value judgment yeah, on it, whether yeah. it's negative or not. Is it representative? I would argue that it's becoming non-representative. Uh, if you look at some of the changes since the 67 referendum and the, the nature of the success of some of the programs that have happened now, I mean, I, I think you can point to as many failures as successes, but the successes in terms of, like, my grandfather died at 43, my father just died two months ago at, at 65, and you think that's a 20-year improvement, if you think about how that works. Hopefully, I will live to 80. Okay, before... Actually, I was going to go on to this later, but we might, might look at it now. So, it's, a report's just come out overnight, the Council of Australian Government's Reform Council report, um, looking at a range of issues um, affecting Aboriginal communities. Now, a number of things came out. There were some positives. Um, Aboriginal primary children are now catching up in terms of the gap with non-Aboriginal kids. Um, I think there were some improvements in infant mortality rates, but there also the, the gap in unemployment is is really wide, um, and there's still this obviously this terrible deficiency in terms of life expectancy. If I can look at if I can talk to Cathy first, perhaps as a journalist, if you if you heard those sort of that, those information, what is the story for you there? Well, the story is obviously the continuing, you know, shameful gap. Um, in all those vital statistics be, uh, between the uh, Indigenous community and, and, and white community. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually read the story this morning, so I'm just... Because yeah. there were positives and negatives. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's interesting. Was Mel yeah. Melandiri, as someone who's, who's obviously reporting in this area, what's the story for you? Well, the story is that uh, closing the gap are targets that have been deliberately set by the Federal Parliament in order to improve the disadvantage of Indigenous peoples. Yet only last week we saw over half a billion dollars cut from Indigenous programs, where 150 programs across the country are being collapsed into five. So immediately it begs the question, how do you achieve the targets of closing the gap through the COAG Select Council? Uh, if you're going to have a tremendous cutting of all these programs. For example, uh, the tobacco advertisements are being cut, and yet we know smoking causes such a huge rise in cancer amongst many people, but predominantly for Aboriginal people, it is the leading killer uh, for, for Aboriginal people. So how do we bring down uh, the, the life expectancy if we are now going to cut? Uh, tremendously the budget. So that's where we would look at and unpack, well, here you are talking about a report, but your report's going to be quite meaningless now, isn't it? Or how do you measure against that report uh, and in terms of uh, your achievements in, in life expectancy? Because that's right, you do have some good news in terms of some of the gap has, has closed, but you still, I mean, from my perspective, my first reaction was, well, the life expectancy gap, which to me seems to be an incredibly important one, is, yeah. is still enormous. So I suppose then you get back to, that's a negative story. It's a, a disadvantage story again, isn't it? It is a bit. And what I, uh, the interesting thing about infant mortality, the, about half of the Aboriginal population is under 35. And that's because of a whole range of you know improvements in uh, infant mortality rates. But that has a cultural impact as well. That some of the narrative that I think we will be seeing come out over the next little while is about intercultural uh, conflict about how younger generations are trying to deal with a modern world and an ancient culture and how we kind of bring those two things together. Where are the programs? Where are the ways of us talking about that? I actually see that as an incredibly positive thing that will have a major impact on how Aboriginal people and Aboriginal culture, or Indigenous culture as a whole, is being promoted into the future. And that as a, as a storyteller, as a theatre maker, I go, well, that's something I have to think about. How do I look at these the, if you like, the interlockers of different generations and different conversations that are happening through storytelling into the future, because that would be an important thing for us. Can I just add to that, though, Fiona? If we look at um, the reporting of these stories, the fact that uh, there is far more reporting, in my view, on Indigenous issues across Australia with, uh, with national uh, newspapers, with uh, the uh, commercial channels, only yesterday you had uh, Sky News, for example, put out a press release 
saying that uh, all next week it will be broadcasting the events of reconciliation. Now, that, that would not have been heard of uh, five years ago or less. Mm -hmm. And I do believe it is because of the presence of uh, an organisation, organisations, you know, Aboriginal media organisations like NITV, like the uh, community broadcasting Aboriginal organisations across the country. So the word is vigilance. There has to be a constant vigilance. Uh, in terms of these reports, and I, I wouldn't put it down to stereotypes, I would put it down to the need to unpack these things properly uh, and also to discuss it in an environment of uh, uh, where you're actually going somewhere constructively with it. Yeah, I, I did want to look at it, I, I touched on this with Wesley before as well, at, at some examples before we go into the negatives of where the media's possibly got the balance, in your view, right. Look, I was interested in the um Andrew Bolt case of whatever, 18 months ago. It was very audible, wasn't it? <laughs> but that, mo that moment where that particular case, I felt like there was a sense of balance coming through. Mainly, I think, because the media hate Andrew Bolt as much as Aboriginal people might do. But the sense of how the balanced view of how we were going to discuss this issue, uh, what it meant, where it came from. I didn't think that it got to the heart of it, especially when the decision was made. I don't think we actually understood enough of that particular um, decision of the court. But there was a sense of how were we going to debate this issue. And it was done, I think, quite respectfully. Uh, here were a group of Aboriginal, uh, mostly women, Aboriginal people, who had been misrepresented by this particular piece of editorial. And, in fact, they had chosen to go through racial vilification laws rather than uh, defamation or other forms of, of pursuit of their case. And it was saying that this was something to be raised up and talked about. And I think there was a lot of discussion and talk. And I still think now that everyone has an opinion about this. And now when they're talking about repealing um, 18C and 18D, is it both of them or just 18C? Well, repealing that, we all have an opinion because I think the media went, oh, we're going to try to try a, try a very balanced position on this and try to redefine Aboriginality not by what the other, the, 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 the non-Indigenous Australia thinks, Indigenous Australia is, but also give Indigenous Australia quite a voice. And I put into this too, the role of social media for me has become more and more important in talking to my tribe. You know, the idea, literally my tribe, my, my father was one of 13, I'm one of 42 first cousins on that side of the family, like literally talking to those people about, but also uh, tribes of thought, and that how we continually pass on different ammunition for discussion and debate, and how then we all act as advocates to go out and talk in the community about particular issues. And I thought that was really quite a positive thing. But how depressing now to be witnessing the backlash against that uh, in the debate that surrounds the, the repeal or amendment of, of those sections of the Racial Discrimination Act. I mean, it's not a very balanced or, or intelligent or, or edifying discussion, I don't think. But my point is, I think that the general public have been exposed to a debate in a way that I thought was quite balanced. Now, if there are uh, strong advocates for its repeal, I think everyone, everyone in the room will have an opinion about it that hopefully is informed. How do we then act on it becomes the next, next uh, decision we, have to, we all have to face. Kathy, I want to ask you something. Oh, sorry. She just said, right, the government. I wanted to actually ask you something about your reporting. I mean, when... Hello. <laughs> when, when you are writing a piece, Cathy, I mean, there are some undoubtedly some terrible statistics associated with, you know, being Aboriginal in Australia. Life expectancy, as we've said, a variety of health issues, neglect, family breakdown. I mean, there, there are some terrible, terrible things that people are having to deal with. How does that weigh on you when you're working? Well, I, I mean, I suppose I try to give... Um a broad picture, not necessarily in each story, but in the you know through the breadth of my reporting, um, you know, which isn't all about doom and gloom. Um, I mean, sometimes it is because of you know because of the kind of report that you're talking about, or because of the kind of government policy that you were mentioning, putting that report in context. Um, but I, you know, I think there are positive stories out there, and I, I mean, I try my hardest to find them. Um, you know, there are positive stories around mining and the arts and Aboriginal tourism. Um, uh, they're not uh, necessarily 100% positive, they all have their complexities and difficulties, but um, you know, one of my problems is that writing mainly for overseas, I find that um, 
you know, it's, the, it's definitely the negative stuff that goes down well, you know, they want the stereotypes to be reinforced of, of, a, of a racist white Australia marginalising, uh, you know, um, disadvantaging and, and, you know, disrespecting its first peoples and so on. Um, and, you know, it's, I'll try and put across that not everyone lives in remote communities here, it's actually the minority, even though that might sound a bit more exotic to British readers. Um, you know, and I try, I try and put across, um, I guess, some of the diversity that exists. You write, Cathy, for, um, you file for Australian, British and New Zealand publications. When they're commissioning you, as I imagine where you're offering up stories, do they commission in a different way? Do they have different expectations, different countries? Um, I, do, I think they do have different expectations, but they're not really articulated. I mean, I think with everyone that I work for, probably I'm fortunate that, um, um, you know, I'm never told how to write anything or, or you know, particularly even told this is the, the interest of a particular story. You know, I, I you know, we'll just say subject X and I'll go away and write about it. Um, but, you know, obviously with New Zealand it's a bit different because they're a lot closer to here, they know a lot more about what's going on. So you can make assumptions about people's knowledge that you can't in a way with British readers. Um, and writing for Australia is, of course, totally different again. Um, so you always have to be mindful of your audience. Um, but I think beyond that, um, I, I would probably try to achieve the same things with whoever I'm writing for. Melanie, is it as a journalist yourself? I mean, have you ever felt compromised in, in having to report any, any Aboriginal affairs stories? I think uh, certainly when I first started uh, Fiona working as a cadet, I remember one of the first uh, stories that I worked on uh, in, the, in the first 12 months to 18 months was the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. So I covered that uh, up in the Northern Territory and it was an incredibly difficult time. I was still quite young uh, coming through as a journalist and having to balance uh, my feelings as a, as a young woman listening to the, uh, the, these horrific stories that were being told uh, in these hearings uh, and to talk with the families who were expressing their grief at what had happened to their loved one. Uh, that was an incredibly difficult time and probably one of the earliest moments for me in having to work out how do I cope and how do I deal with these issues. And I guess what, as I've gone over the years and worked on different stories, it's really about coming to terms with my own sense of self as a younger woman working in the media or, you know, then into, into politics. Uh, it was always coming back to, well, who am I and what are my values and how do I maintain that sense of strength and truth to that? Uh, it really was um, basically about coming back to, to those values uh, in reporting and ultimately, uh, it was about staying with the facts but having the empathy to, to try and look at things a lot more deeply, which were always uh, challenging. And I think also in looking at things a lot deeper, you uh, remembered as a younger woman that our stories and our history has always been about oral history. You know, we are storytellers. So it was a natural sort of progression for me to try and uh, work out how do I fit within this environment and still kind of maintain a sense of sanity in it. Is it easier for you, with no disrespect to the ABC, is it easier for you to work out how to sort of get to that personal compromise now that you file for NITV? I think that, that's interesting, I've not had that question before. I think it's probably only easier for me, largely because of the experience I've had, Fiona. I think that if you were to speak to some of my colleagues in NITV, they may have a different view, because working in the media is tough, you know, and I think, if anything, I can uh, listen and mentor my, my younger colleagues about how they feel, because I know what it was like for me when I came through and the, the emotions and the feelings that I struggled with, culturally, as well as emotionally, and, you know, appropriately in a very tough environment. The media is a really tough environment to work in. You have to work to the best of your ability and you've got to be at, you've got to be on your game 24-7. You've got to know what's going on everywhere. So I can share that, I think, with my colleagues. For the ABC, uh, you know, and hats off to the ABC, uh, that it 
was able to provide an environment for Aboriginal cadets to come through and support that. I was able to go back to my community for sorry business. I could stay in Borrelula. I was able to set up a community radio station in Borrelula with the support of uh, the kind of networking that the ABC put in place, even though I worked with people who simply just didn't know what I was talking about, but they went, okay, we've got to help it, you know? And, and that openness and that willingness to learn and have teachable hearts to take risks, you know, that was what made it possible. It's interesting because it doesn't, that, that sort of empathy and understanding in the workplace doesn't necessarily always translate into the work that you're required to do. Wesley, have you, I mean, you're, you're working in the arts, but have there been times where you felt compromised at all as an Aboriginal person in your work? Um, look, in as much that any artist feels compromised at certain times, there are some things that artists should always, you know, have a, a good moment where you relook at yourself and why should you do it and things, and I think that that's the normal part of what we do. But I, I look to how, how film is working at the moment, because I think what we've been talking about here is should there be a diversity of voices and the whole idea of an extension of self-determination through the telling of these stories, that an Indigenous Australian will tell these stories differently or from a different perspective, you would hope, to a non-Indigenous Australian. Now, I mean, you can pick out examples of where there are the, that's contradictory, but the, the, the sense that in film, we've had an incredible blossoming of Australian film, especially with Indigenous storytelling, over the last, let's say, 10 years. And we can all point to particular moments, you know, Ivan Sen's work um, and Mystery Road recently, The Sapphires, uh, Samson and Delilah. You, you get a sense of a whole breadth of different stories being told. Why? Because they're Indigenous filmmakers. They're at the heart of telling those stories. It's interesting with The Sapphires. I know we've talked about this before. I mean, that it was almost the closest I can... We, I mean, the comparison I drew was the Brady Bunch. It, it sort of had that very cheery, middle-class sort of um, look to it. You don't see that very often. And it, I wonder if that was, in that case, because you had an, an outsider, an, an American studio, trying to put this sort of certain spin on it. And was that a good thing? Look, I, I think, because I worked on the stage play, I was the director of the stage play as well, and at the very beginning of this, we talked about the notion of the Trojan horse. We say, you're going to put these fantastic songs on, you're going to put these marvellous women in sequin frocks, and they're going to get out there and they're going to just, you know, teeth and tits it out, make it all happen in that way. But there will be at the heart of it a story of identity, of family, of connection, and of politics. And this idea of a Trojan horse is, you know, yes, Samson Delilah comes and tells you its story. It picks up its cricket bat and it hits you really hard and you feel it. Something like sapphires, you, you go with a smile on your face and your heart's been opened, or maybe pried open, with a sequin-encrusted kind of crowbar. <laughs> and you get a story in a different way. Now, I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just suggesting that a diversity of stories and a diversity of images from Aboriginal Australia, Indigenous Australia, is incredibly important. And that up until about, let's call it 20 years ago, most of the Indigenous representations on film were done by non-Indigenous people. And what I think we see in the negative stereotypes uh, that are in our media now is mostly because non-Indigenous reporters are reporting from their perspective, their view of what Aboriginal society is. And, and, and that's interesting as well because I know Cathy and I have both been in situations where we've gone out and mm. we've, we've written stories. And, you know, in my case, I was out in the Northern Territory and I was absolutely shocked at at some of the living conditions, well, a lot of the living conditions that, that people were, you know, having to endure. And there's that very great difficulty of wondering, how do I, how do I tell people this without perpetuating the disses that we were talking about before and, and ignoring them, but not wanting to talk about them all the time? Um, is that something that troubles you, Nalandiri? So you mean, why are people living... Um, no, 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 about, you know, as, a, as, a, as someone who, who's looking at it with very fresh eyes, in my case, and possibly in Cathy's, you see, you see things the way that people are having to live in the Northern Territory, and in a sense you're worried that by reporting it again, you're perpetuating the sort of the disadvantage and the dysfunction, right. but yeah. then if you don't let people know about it, yeah. it just continues. So what's the, what's the balance that we should be aiming for? I guess this is where I'd, I would... Uh, 
you know, ask journalists to dig deeper. And, and I, I reflect back on my opening comment, and that was, uh, we have only since 1992 accepted that, uh, you know, Aboriginal people were here and Torres Strait Islanders, uh, you know, prior to, to Captain Cook. In the Northern Territory, you've got uh, nearly 50% of the landmass is uh, Aboriginal land. And that in itself is a wonderful thing for, for the First Nations peoples. But for Western concepts of ownership and land, it is still an incredibly tricky situation. So when you look at uh, negotiating and wanting to do things on the land, uh, Aboriginal people will always say that this is our country, this is our home, I can't be moved from here. So therefore you would see particular um, bow sheets put up or tent cities put up, um, tent embassies put up, because country and culture is that sense of self and identity. However, if, if uh, uh, there was a deeper debate about land, and if we consider the history of you know, wars across the world, it usually largely is about land. And, you know, if there were legislations put in place that could allow an openness to that and that financial institutions were able to take the, the openness and the risk of being able to work directly with Aboriginal people through legislation, they're the things and the questions that I would encourage the media to be asking, uh, not to just look at the superficial of um, just someone in a home or a, or a uh, bow sheet. Let, let's look at that history for that person and their country and why they have chosen to take a stand and make a stand to be there. Can, can I add into this? Just, there is, I think, as, as, as an Indigenous Australian, uh, a, a responsibility we articulate to a community. So even if you're saying something that's quite... Like, like um, I did a show called Stolen, about stolen generations, and there was one particular scene where this character um, who's incarcerated takes his own life. And the, we, were, we debated really heavily, should we show that image on stage? Because if an audience is coming, an Indigenous audience is coming, would there, you know, what responsibility do we have to people whose friends, family may have taken their own life in that situation? And we decided that we would show that image in a very stylized way. But I think the challenge to journalists who have to tell, and I think you have to tell the hard stories, is that it isn't always if I can use the cliche, black and white, that it's, that's often there's, there's always a, a, a ray of hope in there. The one person in the community who's trying to make a difference. And do you, do you say, okay, I'm gonna write the story which is the, the, the challenging piece about conditions and how they need to be improved, and I'm gonna write this profile about this incredible leader who's battling to make a difference and what that person needs to be supported. And do we make sure that there's not just one story, and this is the point, there's often the one story that you actually make sure there are six stories about that community going out there so you get a sense of the breadth and the depth of the complexity that maybe a, a, a community is dealing with. And sure, I know that newspapers, um, I don't know whether um, your Uncle Rupert would want to uh, present that not particular story. <laughs> He's not my uncle, I'll tell you now. But uh, he may not want to present that story. But there are other ways now, like online publishing, that there are multiple ways of getting positive stories out there as well. But in a sense... Oh, sorry, Cathy, did you want to say so, something? I was just going to say something, if that's OK. Just, um, I, I think that's right, Wesley, and sometimes if you can tell more than one story within the same piece, mm. then that's ideal. Um, what came to mind just then listening to you was um, a story I did a few years ago from Fitzroy Crossing um, in Western Australia, um, in the Kimberley, and, um, you know, that, that's a community that... that um, certainly has more than its fair share of problems and, and disadvantage. Um, but the, the story that I came across when I was there was of the, um, the, the, uh, the push by um, community leaders such as um, June Oscar to, um, to get uh, high-strength alcohol banned, basically, locally. Now, look, that's a, it is a vexed issue and you know, it has its proponents and its detractors, but you know, as far as the, sort of the hard evidence at that point about that community and statistics of, of uh, assaults and, and uh, uh, accidents and, uh, and alcohol abuse um, went, you know, it just seemed to be working. And I, you know, I thought it was fantastic, you know. Um, I thought June Oscar was amazing. And, you know, at the same time as telling the story of the community and its problems, you, you could point to this thing that was going on it was, and it was also about self-empowerment, which was really important. 
Do you get the sense ever that, I mean, is there really such a big chasm between the way you would ideally like stories to be covered and the way they are being covered? Is there an enormous amount of ground that needs to be made up, or made up there? Or for, for me, it's not... Um, you don't want to go in and start saying there is a defined way that you must represent anything. I mean, I think journalism is, by its very nature, as wild and free and open as it can be. I think the idea is saying, do, do we have a balanced perspective here? And what are the motivations for telling a story in a very particular way? When I was talking earlier about the tribal nature of the media that's forming, that we're now seeing a lot of our mass media, especially in our newspapers, start to have a very tribal feel to it. That tribe is not my tribe, but that sense of how it's starting to talk in a particular way about particular issues, and you think there are motivations behind that uh, representation that aren't um, obvious, aren't being articulated to us. And so I'm starting to go, how do, how do journalists say, look at um, articulating what motivates a particular view in, that, in their world? So uh, what I'm saying, Andrew Bolt is incredibly clear about what his position is, be it provocateur or um, um, asshole. But <laughs> what he's doing is going, that's my position, and we know when we're reading him that he's got this particular perspective on what he's doing, and so you read him with a grain of salt uh, or, 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 or a barrelful, and you just kind of go in there in that way. But I find that when I'm opening up The Australian at the moment, and you go, why are you saying it like this, and what's this about? And you start to feel that there's a story behind the story that's not being said. And I start to then question what role journalism plays. What do you feel the balance is actually not, it's not as balanced as, it's, it, as it should be in that well, sense? Well, yeah. yeah, it's my feeling. Again, this might be a, a polar paranoia that is coming upon me in the last year, that I'm going, I'm, I'm looking at things going, I think that's, that's not going to be useful or not going to be uh, powerful, or I don't think it's balanced. And the challenge for journalists, I think, is to, 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 to show, as I was saying, this kind of sense of the complexity of the issue, not the simplicity of it. Sorry. Yeah. I think, too, there's another word here that um, comes in with the covering of uh, Indigenous stories, and it's the sensationalised, uh, you know, sensationalising uh, issues. For example, when uh, the ABC went to my community, Barula, and did a story on uh, circumcision and how a particular uh, event went wrong or was certainly a, a, a hurtful experience for uh, one family. Uh, it actually uh, was one part of that story and the outrage and the hurt and the humiliation by the senior elders, men and women, of all the other uh, 60 boys that went through uh, was just devastating, but we didn't hear anything about that because immediately there was a sense of shame uh, within the region that uh, everyone w went quiet until they then uh, were able to come forward a few months later to, to have a gathering amongst each other and say, well, how do we all feel? And, and that particular family then expressed their sorrow that they handled it the way they did. So I, I just think that, uh, again, I, I'd uh, say to journalists, you know, just think. Think before you go in. Think before you cover In that case, stories. were you aware of the, of the community's response a, a lot earlier than other people? Because I'm wondering, is that something that you might have picked up? Is that something NITV could have reported on earlier? Well, that's how we knew. Oh, OK. Mm. OK. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, Wesley, you raised the sort of, the, we talked about the complexities of covering mm -hmm. Aboriginal issues, the, the tendency for sensationalism, but should journalists in the mainstream media who are not Aboriginal, should they be any more aware of that when covering Aboriginal affairs than they do covering any other community, covering any other issue? Look, I think the point is, um, seek the evidence, seek the facts. Um, often we're getting opinions, and I think that a lot of contemporary journalism or, you know, daily journalism is, is turning into a series of opinions about an incident and editorialising the real challenges to go report the facts. And what, that's what I was saying about the Andrew Bolt case uh, 18 months or so ago. We, I got a sense that there was, uh, here's, the, here's the facts, here's the things, here's, the, here's what's happening, here's what someone said. And I know that there's a level of um, 
you know, control over the narrative, as all journalists have, but you had a feeling that the facts and the evidence was being put forward, and the, the decision of where you sat or where you wanted to go as a reader was up to you. You go, oh, yes, I'm for that. Oh, that's actually, I actually have a bit of... And sometimes I actually felt like, oh, Andrew Bond, I'm with you on this. I think this is all right, because I felt like the journalist was giving me a very balanced sense of things sometimes. I mean, I would say that um, um, I cover Aboriginal stories, Indigenous stories, in, in the same way as any other story. Uh, um, and when I say that, I, I don't mean that I'm not mindful of the, um, the peculiar sensitivities that exist um, when you are covering um, Indigenous issues. But, I, you know, I think, I mean, my way of covering any story would be to go in there with respect and empathy to listen, no preconceived ideas, um, read as widely as I can about it so that I, I, I know the background, um, speak to as many people as possible, and then go away and stew it all up in my brain, <laughs> and hopefully write something that is fair-minded and, and you know um, re reflects a complex reality. Uh, but that's what I that's what I try and do with all my journalism. Um, that yes, reporting indigenous issues is definitely the biggest challenge here in Australia, so that requires harder work. And as, as I said at the start um, of the session, you know, I, I'm perpetually frustrated by what I see as my inability to really convey a full picture of uh, the story here, but I think that's just the nature of it. Melandiri, do you think journalists do mainstream media need to be more acutely aware of the complexities in their reporting than any other area? In terms of Indigenous yes. affairs? Look, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's just a vigilance, Fiona, that we're, we're all conscious that uh, people... Uh, there is unfinished business out there in terms of the, the First Nations peoples across this country. And you, you, you've got so much to learn uh, that you've got to keep learning and keep being open-minded to it. I think also that um, there needs to be some practical steps to provide that awareness for journalists. And I don't really think if it, if it is out there... Uh, we talk about cross-cultural training in schools, we talk about cross-cultural training in the legal field. We've never really talked about cross-cultural training in, in journalism. And I do believe that uh, there is an avenue and an opportunity here uh, to actually step into that space more, and even for the war police uh, to, to look at that, uh, to, to offer opportunities for journalists. because. You know, more often than not, people want to just learn. You know, they want to know, and they don't know where to start. They don't know where to go. In an ideal world, can you give me some examples of stories or angles that you'd love to see people writing and reporting about? Well, I was just going to mention, um, you know, talking about how the, the mainstream media in Australia reports Indigenous issues. You know, that I've got um, huge admiration for the work of people like... Um, Paul Tui and Nicholas Rothwell, who in incredibly different ways, um, I, I feel, as an outsider, um, give so much insight. And I think they work, I pull the pulls no longer there, but Nicholas there for a long time, I think they work so hard to, um, you know, to penetrate this very difficult, complex world and, and to, um, um, you know, report, comment, and try and dissect and unpick um, many of the issues, many of the issues that are out there, many of the stories. At the moment, you know, there's the the discussion around constitutional recognition and the change to the constitution that hopefully might happen sooner or later. But it's actually the preamble that I think is going to be the most interesting and potentially the most contentious. What are the discussions that need to happen before that can even? Uh, be considered is one of the stories. And there, there are fundamental questions that I still think that in this country we haven't grappled with. We haven't actually grappled uh, in a kind of broad community way about the ideas of terra nullius and the simple question of were Indigenous Australians here before colonisation? Simple question. Answer, yes. Was that land taken through either, you know, the, the three papal pulls about... Um, uh, there was settlement, war, okay, or seeding. You know, to look at some of the fundamental uh, ideas of law that have interceded and made the situation that we have now. I don't think it, or any Australian actually understands the law behind what's going on. 
with Aboriginal Australia, and that for the last 225 years, what's actually been the state of play. And that's something that's not very sexy, I must admit, and it's not very sensational, but it feels like it's a fundamental question that will rock the very country that we live in and rock the very constitution, the validity of the constitution, if we actually go and dig into it. Who's prepared to do it? Who's prepared to make it a little bit infectious? And you do raise a very interesting point there because it's true. There are not many sexy stories around, are there? So I've, I'm and that's that. a difficulty. I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've offered that constitutional story to a number of people, including um, some leading magazines in Australia, and just been told, you know, look, it's just just doesn't do it. You know, too hard, too yeah. well, but this no, is too boring. Yeah, no. yeah, but this is the issue of market forces. Market forces being brought to play on what is, I think, about a, a great social project in this country. The great social project is understanding who we are and what, what future we will have. And until we actually move through our adolescence about this particular issue, we will never mature. You know, we are such a... We, we, we think that by denying this series of facts that the things will go away, and I don't think it will. And so my feeling is that, you know, we have to almost get away from the market forces discussion and maybe this is something that you know leadership uh, in government or maybe outside of government need to take on board and make make more public. Need to make it a more compelling story. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I think just to to add to that, Fiona, what, one of the challenges we have at NITV News is that we have a weekly and nightly uh, half-hour bulletin that we need to put together on uh, you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories every day. And so it's been an incredible learning for us as a team to explore how do we do that without um, kind of burying people in depressing stories, um, but also how do we do that without uh, being too soft as well on, on the serious stories and, and trying to find the balance. And it has been quite an extraordinary experience for us. Uh, we're such a fledgling news service that we, we look at the arts, we look at the sports, and every night we fill the bulletin of 25 minutes of, of stories of interest about Black Australia that, that every Australian should be aware of and have an opportunity to link into. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is that a, a really strong example for me was covering the budget. So I went to cover the federal budget with Miles uh, Morgan, our political reporter, and he went into the budget lockup. I uh, went through the papers when he came out. And we looked at all the responses that were coming through, but there were no Indigenous responses, and there was no focus on, and this was in the initial uh, sort of 12 hours of the budget, uh, as to the dramatic impact of such a substantial amount of money that was uh, being pulled from uh, the First Nations peoples across the country. So that we then follow that, unpacked that, and then there was a group of uh, Aboriginal leaders from across health, uh, legal, uh, from closing the gap, who then met in the uh, uh, Parliament House uh, courtyard to let the world know that, hey, uh, we're a part of this budget too. So I think the question here is more about every time you do a story as a journalist, ask, what does it mean to black Australia? On that note, we are going to turn to you all. If you have some questions, please raise your hand. And we have a microphone, I believe, that will be passed around. I might go to this gentleman here first. Um, I'm very taken with the idea that My you heard, I think, overall to everything, but the one you raised about getting a, a fresh story out there and it being something that people haven't picked up. Uh, I believe that that's the secret of success, not only for Australia, but for the world. Because basically, the world is, let's say, uh, as uh, globally, uh, economically ravaged as we seem to be or pretend we are here. And there are always uh, marginalised people in countries, whether or not they're Russians that feel marginalised. So I know that it, 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 but there's no good story about the beautiful fact that despite the fact that the African peoples came here some years ago in order to uh, show us the way forward here in Australia and to create in Australia the, the sort of nonsense that went on in Africa, that this was turned down by wiser heads at the time. And I think that's a story that I'd like to add to what you were saying, 
and together it, it resonates with the story of the new guard, but that's too complex to bring in in question. Are you talking about the Black Panther movement or something? Or, uh, sorry, the South African delegates that came yes, down yes, to Cranby yeah. College yeah. spoke to Kevin Gilbert and the crew and said, do it our way, and yeah. Kevin quietly said, um, we're going to do it our way. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, without trying to be too sensational about it, you know, in the 1970s there was absolutely a pathway. The pathway was Black Panthers and active resistance, you know, or was there a kind of conciliatory and thoughtful way to, to, to move through? And Aboriginal Australia said, no, we, this, is, this is our way of doing it and we will do it. And, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes when you go to, to things in the Pacific, I know that certain, like, Māoris in particular say, why did you give it up? Why give up? Why didn't you keep fighting? And there's a, some tensions amongst our other um, Indigenous brothers and sisters about the way Indigenous Australia deals with this, but it is our way, and I, I'm all for it, that we chose a way that was not that. Who's next? Um, it's been my impression over the last couple of years, and it's sort of been a bit of a sea change in the acceptance of Indigenous um, culture by non-Indigenous people. It has been, um, you know, quite a, a big change, and, and particularly I think of um, things like Retro Now on television, that series, and also um, the last, last one I've been watching is The Gods of Wheat Street. And so it hasn't been reflected in the mass media like the Australian Sydney Morning Herald. They've got a different agenda. So, I mean, and I went to a fantastic show here actually called during November and Corroboree Week, and they did a fa fabulous show called The Bitch is Black, which I've never laughed so much in my life. I mean, so one thing also I think that is left out of the stereotype of Aboriginal is their sense of humour. When you think of the chucky dancers and uh, things like that, it's um, amazing. So I think what's happening is this discontinuity between what's happening in the mass media and their reflection of Aboriginal and, and I think the greater acceptance and appreciation of non-Indigenous Australians of Aboriginal culture. Um, okay. Can I suggest, because I think there was a schism that formed in the mid to late, well, into the late 90s, Reconciliation was very much a government movement, I think, from you know the Keating Hawke years. Uh, and then into the Howard years, there was a schism that formed where government was no longer going to be responsible for reconciliation. And I think that it became a people's movement at that point. And so that we are finding, you know, like yourself sitting in this room talking about issues, there is a strong kind of people's movement. And the walking across the bridges and stuff, if, if people are old enough to remember that, in, in 2000, that notion of how there was a real sense of unity and speaking out that, in fact, the disjuncture is not necessarily the, um, the people in, in themselves and the mass media, but I think in certain ways the decision makers and policy makers and the people's will. Sure, I think you can find people who disagree with me, but I think there is a, a fundamental belief that Indigenous Australians were here, that they have uh, moral rights in terms of sovereignty and things, and that it has to be dealt with, but no leadership to deal with it, and I think that's if it was led in a particular way in a debate, I think we could get more of that in the media. I wonder what you all think about the idea of uh, a bit more coverage of Aboriginal humour and how, it, how we might see that portrayed. Oh, it was great to hear what you had to say and you're absolutely spot on. I mean, it is the humour and that's the... When I was talking about the, the content that we look at each night for our bulletin, that's what we, we look at, is right across the board. Uh, Redfern Now uh, is, is an amazing uh, example within mainstream television of, you know, just a, a good story, you know, they're good stories. Um, and I think if uh, we can have more of that uh, widely recognised, that's something we'd all want, and I guess that's what we've got to keep working on. But as Wesley says, when people walk the bridge and you saw the sea of hands go up around the country, it is about the people of this country uh, who know it's just the right thing to do. Humour's a great Trojan horse in the same way. You get other things in because you're smiling and laughing. And it breaks, it breaks the barriers, doesn't it? You know, you immediately just relax and you think... And I think humour is a sign of survival. That, you know, humour has become this sign of survival and we... I think and resilience. And resilience mm. as well. But it's also universal, isn't it? And it, it's a really good unifying factor. Any, any sort of ideas from the theatre director as uh, some possible comedies? Ah, uh, some comedies. <laughs> Not my life story at the moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
All right, I think we had a, a lady up the back who's wanting to ask a question. Oh, yeah. And I'm a big fan of NIT. They're I think really good quality too. One of the things I'd like to comment on is <clears throat> the effect that saying sorry had, and I think if you just actually had photos of some of the faces of the people when that apology happened, it was very, very powerful. I just have another look at that. The other one is, I guess, the significant Aboriginal Australians who are world-renowned um, and have got global coverage. Um, the Indigenous art that is painted on the rooftops in by an elder woman um, in Paris, go more. I just think these things um, are things that we really need to be in support, and obviously everyday narrative storytelling. Uh, I'd like to hear your comment on the Australian um, curriculum. I've been an educator for many years and trialled the National Aboriginal Studies curriculum back in the 80s. I don't hear a lot about it. It's a very powerful curriculum. My, my interest then is to ask the panel um, whether they're familiar with the Australian National Curriculum, which has an emphasis across the board for all year levels and all curriculum, and what they would... Um, I'm sorry, I've lost my train of thought, but yeah. But about okay. indigenous, uh, indigenous perspectives throughout the whole thing, yeah. Mm. yeah. Look, okay. um, well, we know there's a review that's currently underway, and certainly uh, the, uh, the two people who've been appointed to look at the review of the Australian curriculum are still undergoing that review. Uh, the initial concern at the time was around uh, Indigenous perspectives across subjects and faculties. Uh, there was underway already in the last couple of years a uh, push for the year 8, 9 and 10 syllabuses to have, I think as you might know, uh, you know the, the Indigenous perspectives in terms of history and geography. But there is a much broader push, I know, to have it in all faculties. But when you have a comment uh, like uh, maths and science should not be taught in Aboriginal, I think it, it misses the point altogether uh, that uh, even ACARA, which is, uh, as you probably know, ACARA is the leading national uh, organisation that's responsible for the curriculum. Um, and putting up suggestions for government, for the federal government to look at. Uh, ACARA came out and said that it wasn't about saying that there had to be uh, maths and science uh, taught in Aboriginal. It was about uh, different schools across the country, science teachers, maths teachers, who were trying to reach their Aboriginal students in maths and science by, by using diagrams, by using uh, certain things that related to their background and their culture to be able to help them to understand maths and science better. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but there's certainly, um, from what I understand, talking to uh, groups like the AECG, the Aboriginal Education Consultative Group, and uh, also uh, different uh, educational uh, groups across the country, there is a widespread view that there needs to be Indigenous perspectives right across all faculties. Do we have time for one more question? Yeah. That lady's uh, comment on the national curriculum, there is one big major flaw. It's not a national curriculum. Every state government has been allowed to fiddle with it for their own state needs. Mm. And, right. uh, and, and private schools have been allowed to fiddle with it as well. Mm. So, you know, it's not going to be, oh, a kid from here goes to another state, fits in. Just a big con job, the whole damn thing. <laughs> and that's been there. No, no, but, but, but you're, you're right. And that's been where the complexity has lied because uh, they, they haven't been able to unite in that. But I think that's also reflective of many other things other than curriculum. Yeah. We've got time for one very quick oh, last yeah, question in the front room. row. Just a complete change of tact. Um, corporate Australia over the last decade has really embraced. Uh, reconciliation action movement and you never see the reporting of the fact that if you look at the the number of plans that have been re um, registered with Reconciliation Australia 
quite copious, right? Because we'll look, blossom over the last five or six years, and um, there is a huge amount of work being done in the resource industry in that regard. And uh, there is a good story that we've never had as appears. I just come from, I was in the Pilbara last week doing some work, this research for a project, and the kind of level and detail of consultation, the, the there's, there's a lot of money in the resource sector, obviously, and there, there are some issues around native title and the rights of native title holders to literally negotiate not, not just money, but other forms of cultural uh, control over things. That aside, there is a great deal of wonderful stories coming out of, of that sector and how it's also community building um, and how if communities are empowered and, and given responsibility for things, there is a responsible government of, of all those issues. So I'm with you on that. And the Reconciliation Action Plan, if, if anyone's thinking about this, it's a fantastic thing. If, if for no other reason than it links you up with like-minded people around the country. Um, and so I was uh, uh, on the, the, the trust of the Sydney Opera House, and we had our Reconciliation Action Plan, and immediately you plug into a whole range of you know, different corporate entities that can then say, well, part of our plan is employment, part of our plan is about philanthropy or understanding or cultural exchange and suddenly you've got peers. So if you're out there, think about Reconciliation Action Plan because they, they are important processes of thinking, if nothing else, but processes of thinking. Well, I think that a good news story suggestion is an excellent way to finish. Thank you all for that. Thank you all, our panellists, if you'll... Thank, thank you, you. Make sure you save the date for the Walkley Storyology Summit, which is happening in Sydney this year from December 1 to 4. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.